hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Thanksgiving 2022 episode of Cotton Grower Magazine's Cotton Companion Podcast. I'm Jim Stedman, editor of Cotton Grower. I'm joined again today by my own cotton companion, Beck Barnes. Beck, what's uh, what's the family doing for Thanksgiving this year? Man, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have us a country Thanksgiving, Jim. We're gonna go uh, head south out of Memphis, get out of the city, and uh, head down 61 to the Delta, and just uh, hang out and eat big with my parents, and maybe get in the deer stand for a couple of days. Of course. You know, it's been, as you know, Jim, it's been freezing here in the Mid-South, literally, uh, for most of the past week, which I'm licking my chops to get into the deer stand for. And when I'm home on Wednesday and Thursday, it's going to be in the 50s and 60s. So not, of course, not great for hunting, but uh, that's the, that's that Murphy's Law thing whenever I try to get down there and hunt. But it's going to be great. What do you, you're headed north, is that right? With some family? Yeah, as a, as a matter of fact, you're headed south and I've already headed north. I'm sitting in uh, in my wife's family's farmhouse in uh, in beautiful Alexis, Illinois, which is just south of the Quad Cities, 17 miles from the Mississippi River. So, you know, we're we're still right there along, along the, you know, the big muddy at this point. I love that. I, I, I wish we could get a somebody come out and take a picture of you from where we're all the exotic locales that we do the cotton companion. Oh yeah, from. definitely. Definitely. But no, it's sort of a, you know, family tradition. We all come up for Thanksgiving week, uh, you know, get the whole extended family together. So, uh, you know, and, and thanks to technology, we're able to do things like this. Yeah. What a time. From definitely from extra remote locations, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's fine. It, it, and you say it's chilly down there. It's still chilly up here. And, you know, they did have a little snow last week. So there's a few little remnants of snow here and there, but I think we're going to be fine. Yeah. You're accustomed. You can, you could survive. I, 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 I would struggle, but you're fine. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, realistically, you know, harvest is done up here. The corn's out of the field, soybeans are out of the field, you know, combines put away. Uh, everything's moving ahead into, uh, you know, into holiday season and, and the, that busy time of year where you get ready for next year. So, yeah. You know, Kudos, kudos to uh, to my wife's side of the family for for keeping all of that uh, that tradition and everything moving and uh, staying an important part of agriculture. Yep. Like I said, since this is sort of a holiday episode, uh, we obviously want to keep things moving and, and get to our guest of the day, uh, Dr. Don Parker, who's Vice President Technical Services with the National Cotton Council, is going to be joining us in a very few minutes to discuss current situation and status with EPA and other organizations regarding product registrations, re-registrations, and other challenges that could obviously impact U.S. cotton production. But I've got just a few quick notes here regarding some deadlines that may be of interest to, uh, to folks, and some of these deadlines are coming up quickly. First of all, cotton producers, independent crop consultants, and students who register for the 2023 Beltwide Cotton Conferences before December 14th can take advantage of reduced registration fees of only $80. After that date, the rate goes back to its original $100 registration fee. Now, Beltwide is set for uh, January 10th through 12th at the New Orleans Marriott in New Orleans, Louisiana, with updates on latest research, technology, and issues affecting U.S. cotton production and processing. If you're planning to attend, you're encouraged to register online by clicking on the registration tab at www.cotton.org slash beltwide. That also includes links to more information about the program, including housing reservations, 
and an updated look at the program. I think it's getting updated every week at this point. But yeah, if you want to uh, want to join everybody in New Orleans, uh, you got an opportunity to do it at a discounted rate through December 14th. Well, they got all the uh, sessions and uh, info at that thing, but right. there's also Acme Oyster House and uh, all of the all <laughs> of the good eats that are going on down there. To me, would be the main draw. It's you know it, it's 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 the stuff outside the meeting. There you go. You know where the, that's where that's where all the real work gets done. <laughs> that's true. Uh, you know, literally, it really is. There's an awful lot of sitting around lobbies and talking with folks uh, on this and, and debates and. And things like that, but it's that's what makes it such what's a, such a great conference. Yeah. Anyway, from another deadline perspective, from BASF comes word that enrollment is now open for their FiberMax One Ton Club and their Stoneville Legacy Club, both of which honor hard work and hard earned yields of growers who uh, who plant FiberMax and Stoneville cotton varieties. And for the first time since uh, 2019, those growers are going to be celebrated in person. Uh, in 2023. Uh, printed qualification forms have been mailed to FiberMax and Stoneville growers. They should already have those in their hands. And applications for both of these clubs can also be submitted online at BASF's FiberMax One Ton Club and Stoneville Legacy Club websites, both of which are going to include all the qualification details and information about these club gatherings and some other special prizes as well. Now, Beck, I know we both we both had the opportunity to attend the One Ton Club event in uh, in Lubbock, and it's it's a first class fun evening for for growers and and I think for the company as well. Yeah, yeah, man, that thing's always a hit out there. It's it's a lot of fun for the farmers. They used to give away an awesome truck at that thing. Of course, I was always yeah. I think that's that's still on the agenda. It's uh, yeah, you can you can win a two year lease, I believe. On well, that. our audience could. I was always DQ'd. <laughs> Because, I, yes, because I I'm in the media, even though I need the truck more than anybody. Not, I really don't need a truck, but it was always a good looking deal. So uh, congrats to the farmers, to our audience uh, who are who made it to that thing by knocking their yields out of the park. It's always a great event. Yeah, definitely. Well, I don't think we need to remind anybody that 2022 was a challenging year for cotton. And some of those challenges, for the most part, were being managed out of sight for most of us, but certainly not out of mind. Debates and discussions on government rules and regulations were being handled on Cotton's behalf through efforts led by the National Cotton Council and other state organizations and specialists. And it's been a particularly busy year on that front. So joining us now to review and update some of those discussions is Dr. Don Parker, Vice President Technical Services with the National Cotton Council. Don, welcome to the Cotton Companion. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate you and Beck getting giving me notice and let me participate here. All right. Well, we'll we'll see how you feel once we finish the questions, okay? Be kind. Okay. Well, just to get us just to get us started, I'm going to step back a few years to one of the beltwide meetings where you took the podium late in the afternoon and started ringing the warning bells about legal challenges that were lining up for some of our most effective cotton insecticide products relating as as I recall the best I can monarch butterflies and bees. Yes. And that seems like forever ago. Your predictions have certainly come to light and then some, especially over the last few years. Yeah, it, it really has. And, and the challenge is just uh, intensified. Um, it's a, a big conflict that's going on within the regulatory arena. And EPA is doing a whole lot of things now trying to, um, trying to address the conflict. 
but it's it's really a, a big conflict between two federal statutes. And that is the FIFRA statute, which is what EPA operates under to register uh, pesticides. Um, and, and that statute identifies to them um, the protection standards for human protection and for environmental protection. There is another statute, though, the, the Endangered Species Act, that that statute uh, gives authority to Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine and Fisheries Services, um, both of those under two different agencies. So their authority is for the protection of threatened and endangered species. And FIFRA has a clause, I mean, ESA has a clause in it that says any federal agency taking an action that may affect a threatened or endangered species or its habitat must do a consultation with the services. That has is created a major hangup in the whole regulatory arena. The reason that that's such a problem is that FIFRA mandates that EPA use a bunch of studies and data. And from those studies and data, they have a timeline to complete a registration of, of a, a product. The Endangered Species Act gives some flexibility to the services to where uh, it says to use the best data, but then data may not be available in their eyes for an endangered species. So it also authorizes them to develop a biological opinion. And they're not on a timeline. They don't have to do this by a certain date. So all of a sudden you have a conflict where that EPA in its process determines that it can register a product, say for the environment and for humans, but they have to then get uh, agreement with the services and the services has to do their biological opinion, which is going to take several years to develop. And then that draws a legal conflict with FIFRA. So EPA hasn't been able to, to get these consultation processes completed. Only about 5% of the pesticide products have they actually been able to complete the ESA consultation. And that's just resulted in a lot of lawsuits um, for EPA to complete those, which has created a backlog of court mandates for EPA to have something done by a certain date. And the process is, is so broken that they're not able to get it done by the court's mandate. And it's created a major jeopardy for the whole system. Yeah, no kidding. I know there was a lot of debate and, you know, I think, I, think, I guess the, the biggest example I can come up with, or maybe one of the good examples on this is, the registrations that came EPA granted last year for the auxin herbicide products, like you know the new dicamba and two four D formulations, of course those those labels had been rescinded uh, after some legal challenges from several groups on that, and now they've turned, the groups are again coming back to challenging the risk assessment of those products and, and again demanding those labels be changed or or vacated. What's the current status on that? The court told EPA to complete the endangered species risk assessment. That would have been mandated. So, so you have to have that for the final registration decision. But EPA knew they would not get that completed. And the court had also requested some uh, clarification on some items in the interim registration decision. So 
EPA rescinded their interim registration decision so that they could make the adjustments. And then once they get that interim registration decision, they'll have to get the ESA consultation to have a final decision on the registration of the product. So it just delays that decision-making process. Fortunately, right now we have a label in play that, that, that we're okay on. It's just going forward to make sure that we get all of these opinions and, and consultations lined up to get a final registration before this registration expires. Right. Now, there were a lot of products in, already in the re-registration pipeline, as I understand it. Uh, you know, a lot were, you know, going through this whole re-registration process. And these are, you know, key products like, uh, you know, sulfoxiflor, the organophosphates, uh, diuron, cotteran, uh, products that have been used for a long, long time in cotton and are still very valuable in, in production. And, and now there's even discussion about, are we going to add another layer of, of regulation to treated seed? Uh, I'm sure this is all tied up in, in this conflict between EPA and, and, uh, and endangered species. What should growers expect right now uh, in terms of their, their, you know, what's going to be available, what's going to be available for their planning and, and production next year? Any, any feel or any, any word on that? You know, right now, right now, we think that there's no decision that is, that is going, that is pending, that's going to remove any products. There may be some adjustments on some interim decisions that put some new label, uh, some new mitigations in place that you have to comply with to be able to use the product. And, you know, a, a very important point that, that we need to make sure we get the message out, and this is a good forum for it. In working on this endangered species component, EPA has implemented a new process, and they have a website that's called Bulletins Live 2. And Bulletins Live 2 is now considered an extension of the label. So whenever you look at a label in the endangered species um, section of that label, it will have a statement on there that um, for the protection of endangered species, uh, comply with mandates of this label and check Bulletins Live 2 to see if there are specific labels for your location. Now that's that's a critical thing that that especially our, our growers and, and applicators need to know and understand is that that is now a legal obligation. So you have to go to this website within, I believe it's within six months of the use of this product. You have to go to this website, type in what product you're talking about using, identify the location that you're wanting to use that product. And then it will generate a PDF whether or not you have additional restrictions that apply to, to your use. And in that PDF, you need to print that out. And I urge everybody, if it gives you new instructions or if it tells you there are no additional instructions, print it out either way and keep it with your label because those two things combined show that you have made a legal application with that product. And that, that um, Bulletin's Life 2 is a new thing that many people 
um, are, you know, it's kind of in small print. And, and uh, I've had some discussions recently with EPA about mm -hmm. making sure we get the awareness of this Bulletin's Live 2 component. Uh, and it's linked as a legal obligation to the label. Now, in that, in that Bulletin's Live 2, it may tell you that you have endangered species in your area and that, that you know, there may be a buffer requirement that it gives you or it may give you some other requirement. That is going to start changing a lot. That Bulletin's Live 2, if you print it off today, it may not be the same in five months from now. And that's why it's important for you to, to know the timeline that, that you're good for that, um, whatever you print off, and then you're legal under that obligation. EPA just recently released what they call an, an update to their work plan. And it was just released last week. And I've been trying to go through and look at, look at it but it is basically um, what EPA is trying to do is they're saying, we're going to intensify our ecological risk assessment. And during that process, we're going to determine if there are potential risk to threaten an endangered species. If there are identified risk, then in our proposed interim decision, we're going to include additional mitigation measures for the protection of non-target species, including um, threatened and endangered species. So we're going to see an increase in, in um, information on Bulletin's Live 2 to try to protect these threatened and endangered species. And EPA has and, and what they've just released, EPA is asking for comments and feedback on it. And they are they have proposed some mitigation measures that um, would reduce runoff, would reduce movement of pesticide through erosion, would reduce um, spray drift. And those are three of the major areas that they're they're targeting. And so there would be kind of a pick list that they would give you different options of what you could do um, so that you could still use that label with these different mitigation options. I'm just sitting here thinking, God, God bless you, Don, for keeping up with all the all the red tape there. I mean, it's such a valuable service that you provide, reading, reading this fine print and uh, relaying that to the farmers. So we appreciate your efforts there. I'll tell you, uh, I want to switch gears here, maybe off of the regulatory stuff. One thing that I know that you are quite knowledgeable of, that I've gotten firsthand view of, is the Cotton Foundation, uh, which I know you are uh, heavily involved with, you lead. Tell a brief story here, Don. I tell people this all the time. Maybe a year and a half, two years ago, when Don first came to a leadership position with the foundation, and he and I were talking, and he said, Beck, what, what do you think the Cotton Foundation does? And I stammered and, and stumbled and uh, eventually came out and said, oh, you know, I'm just not real sure, which was a bad answer if you were the longtime editor of Cotton Grower Magazine. And uh, Don, Don kind of chuckled and said, that's okay, I hear that a lot. And so he has kind of taken me firsthand to see a lot of the great things that the foundation has been doing around the industry and a lot of the research that they fund and the efforts that they fund 
to better our industry. With that as a backdrop, Don, can you tell us, uh, tell our audience anything the foundation is up to at the moment, any activities or projects that you guys have going on that you're especially proud of that you want to highlight? You know, it, and it, it is amazing that, uh, you know, one of the things that I do want to do and and being the executive director now is try to help our members, our cotton farmers understand what the foundation is and what it does, as well as our partners in the foundation, our members. So the foundation basically is for those entities that have a vested interest in the same mission and goals of the council can join the Cotton Foundation. And that would include, you know, John Deere and registrants of products, different ones that, that could be members of the foundation, including our media friends. And um, through the foundation, the, the dues that they pay, we sponsor research and education products uh, projects that that um for the cotton industry and some of those projects we've had going for a while is is uh field to market engagement and trying to capture data for the field to market component for sustainability we have another component in there that is uh, called special projects where that we can get some of our member companies to contribute funds above their dues uh toward a special project and one of those that have been very helpful for us, we call the Educational Outreach Program. And through the Educational Outreach Program, we're able to host um, groups from EPA to take them out in the field on the farm and let them visit with different farmers, ag consultants, extension and uh, research from the universities, to really understand and get a better vision of what we're actually doing at the farm level. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions and all there that that are very inaccurate. And by being able to bring these groups out, it has really um, expanded their understanding and helped us in, in their approach on the regulatory aspects around cotton. So that's been a tremendous program. Yeah, I saw that you had a group, an EPA group down there touring farms, cotton farms down in Georgia here recently, maybe like a month ago. And I just love that program. I mean, you bring you bring EPA down and say, hey, look, meet a real farmer. You know, <laughs> this is not this is not your enemy. This is a real hardworking, small, uh, small business owner, American farmer who provides such a valuable service. You know, it's just good to get everybody at the same table. And I, I love that uh, the foundation kind of is involved in bringing those parties together. It's amazing the uh, participation that we get from our cotton producers and extension has been tremendous benefit in all of this because EPA hears from me, I want them to come out and face the people that they are imposing these regulations on and hear directly from them and, and sit there across the table from a producer who, who will tell you, if I don't have dicamba, I cannot control pigweed. You know, that that has a major impact on his farm so that um, they get a better understanding of the importance of these different crop protection products. It's been a great program with great participation from producers and extension. That's great. Well, Don, uh, one last thing we want to talk about briefly is uh, Beltwide Cotton Conferences are coming fast. 2023 meeting is uh, set for New Orleans here in mid-January. It's a, it's a very, very rich research meeting. And 
from our perspective, obviously we're able to come away with plenty of article ideas and new industry contacts to, uh, to kind of last, you know, help us out through a, a whole year of editorial content. What would you tell someone in the cotton industry on why, why they should uh, plan to attend? What can they expect to see and learn this year? You know, I think that, that back in time, whenever they first envisioned and, and started Beltwide Cotton Conferences, um, that was an amazing uh, task that the council undertook. And all of the research and extension planning uh, that goes on there is basically, it's the hub network of trying to get all of the research and extension planning uh, for the next year. I think that whenever you go to Beltwide, you will realize that everything, everyone that is engaged in the production on the farm and, and the, um, all the different facets of, of ginning and everything, everybody is there. Weed scientists, engineering, entomologists, plant pathologists, you know, the whole group, everybody is there. Most of the companies are there as well because they are behind the scenes. They're making plans with some of these different researchers on some research programs they're interested in for the next year. Probably the strongest thing that you get out of Beltwide is the networking that goes on behind the scene, as well as an enormous amount of recent current information on what's going on in cotton, uh, what's the research showing currently, um, what's the best things uh, that, that's being identified moving forward. And, you know, a component with that, Jim, is the uh, consultants conference on that first day. And that conference, we kind of been working over the last few years, getting that um, being driven by the consultants themselves. So they decide they, they, they decide what are the topics that we need to hear talk about that are key to our operations and all this year. And so there's some great topics that are, that are in that uh, consultants conference, um, tremendous amount of topics in all of the other conferences from the research community and extension community. Um, and that whole community is critical to maintain the support for our producers at the farm. Well, it's always a great meeting. We, in, we enjoy being there and, and certainly having it back in New Orleans also opens up a lot of opportunities for some, uh, you know, some pretty decent social activity and, and some really good food too. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a good crowd down there this year. Don, uh, we're gonna, we'll, we'll end today's session and uh, thanks so much for taking time to, uh, to join us today. Obviously you and the council have an awful lot of stuff on your plates. Uh, we certainly commend you for the work you've done and continue to do on Cotton's behalf and and looking forward to seeing you in New Orleans at Beltwide. Thanks, Jim. And same here. Everybody take care. Thank you, Don. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Cotton Companion podcast. Uh, we want to send a special thanks to Dr. Don Parker, who's been a great friend to Cotton Grower and a great friend to Cotton Farmers, uh, for taking the time out of his busy schedule and visiting with us. And, and as always, we want to thank you, dear listeners. Uh, we've hope, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you like what you hear on the Cotton Companion, please be sure to spread the word and tell your friends about this podcast. Here's where and how they can find us. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion, or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes 
or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Cotton Companion Podcast is produced twice monthly by Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson, our talented colleagues at the World Headquarters for Maestro Media Worldwide in beautiful but wintry Willoughby, Ohio. I'm Jim Stedman. He's Beck Barnes. And we'll be back with you in a few weeks for the 2022 year-end episode of the Cotton Companion. Until then, stay safe. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made it for me.